Good morning. Can you hear me? Oh, great. Derwin, I'm not going to pick on you today. You can rest at ease. Uh, you know, it is always a blessing to bring the good news of Jesus Christ. Always a blessing. And I want to thank Derwin for inviting me to do this again. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 16, and we're going to look at it in three stages. We'll begin by preparing ourselves to enter into the psalm, because we have a lot in it, so we need to prepare ourselves. And then we're going to spend time in the psalm itself, looking at David's purpose and his intent in writing those words. We're going to look at the structure of the psalm, we're going to look at the words and the flow and the sections so that we can understand David's thought process. And finally, we're going to reflect on what the psalm means to us today. So let us begin. Now, I believe that anyone who has ever prayed passionately, and I mean passionately, about a situation that only God could resolve, or a problem that only God could address, a need only God could provide for, is probably aware of the state I'm about to describe. It is a state of tension. Tension. What do I mean by tension? I'm talking about the kind of conflict that arises when in our body, in our minds, with our hearts, with our spirits, we believe that we're praying to a God for whom all things are possible of whom the Bible says that he is able to do exceeding, abundantly, more than we could ask or imagine. But with our eyes, we can still see the difficult circumstances. In our bodies, we can still feel the pain and the fear and the anxiety. Now, this sort of tension arises because we're always confronted by two realities a physical reality and a spiritual reality because God in His wisdom has made us to be creatures that are both physical in nature and spiritual in nature. And so when we are in these moments of tension, we become the battleground, the meeting place of the kingdom of heaven and all its promises and its assurances and its blessings and its hopes and the kingdom of this world which is fallen susceptible to sin and to darkness. Now, ever since the fall of Adam, we have become more readily able to navigate the physical world than we can the spiritual world. And so we see the physical picture more readily than we see the spiritual picture. And one way of illustrating this is to look at optical illusions. I have three of them up here. You may have seen them before. Now, when you look at these images, each one of them has two pictures in it. But you see one picture more quickly, more readily than you see the second. And in order to see the second picture, you actually have to focus. You have to put out of your mind certain elements about the first picture and consciously look at the second one. And the minute you stop looking, the second picture begins to elude you. This is a type of challenge that we have when it comes to seeing spiritual realities. The Bible 
is categorically clear that God has given us one gift, one instrument by which we navigate this tension, by which we see the second picture. It is called faith. Faith. Now, I am aware that the minute we talk about faith, that we enter into potentially contentious territory. And, and the reason is because, on the one hand, faith seems to be contradicted by our human experience. You can almost as easily find someone who says, I believed, I trusted God, and it did not happen. As you can find someone who says, I could not believe, I did not believe, and it did happen. Similarly, faith is also clouded by, by individual interpretations about how far we can take it. On one extreme, you have people like the pastor in East Africa who, in March of this year, preached on faith, and the next week he decided to demonstrate faith by walking on water. And he chose no other body of water than the one the locals call Crocodile River. It didn't end well for him. So that is one extreme. But on the other extreme, I remember a conversation I had with someone about three years ago. And he said to me, I have faith that God's purposes will come to pass. I have told him his purposes should come to pass. And therefore, I cannot understand why I find myself in this situation where I have made bad choices and God did not bother to overrule my choices. Of course, that position is also wrong because it fails to recognize the quality of God's love, that it requires us to be creatures of free will, and that our faith requires that we participate, not that He overrules us. So in the midst of these sort of conflicting issues, these, these things that can cloud the topic, it is hard to spend time trying to understand what faith is and how we put it to practice, what it looks like in practice. But we're not supposed to give up because it's too important a topic for us to ignore. In Ephesians 6.16, Paul tells us that in addition to these things, we should take up the shield of faith because it is the means by which we extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Faith is the means by which we mount our defense against the enemy. So we simply cannot ignore it. So today, we're going to spend time looking at faith. But instead, instead of taking a clinical, removed, sort of academic approach to it, we're going to come about it in a, bit, in a bit of a different way. We're going to look at Psalm 16, an artifact of faith that was written by David, one of whom it is said that he was a man after God's heart. He was a man of great faith. And we're going to look at the psalm to see if we can understand what faith looks like in practice. What are the nuances of faith? What is the thought process? How do we go about putting it to use. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. 
I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the maker of heaven and earth, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. We are gathered this morning in your name to look upon your word. And we ask that as we look, that you would open the eyes of our understanding so that we would be able to comprehend the depths of your love for us, the greatness of your sacrifice for us, and the power of your resurrection, even in our present circumstances. We ask these things in your name, and we thank you for hearing us. Amen. Whew. Thank you, Lord. Okay. So let us begin by examining the purpose of this psalm. As far as categorizations go, this is a psalm of confidence. And in it, we find that David is exalting God in the midst of his circumstances. He's speaking about certain attributes, certain characteristics, the abilities of God. And we see this in the words that he chooses. He says, in you, with you, you are, you will, you make, you, God, you. It's all about you and what you can do. But David isn't simply saying these words. He's not just mouthing them, even though if you're going to mouth anything, those would be the right words. But what he's doing here is he's mounting a defense the way Paul tells us to do. And for us to see it, we need to take a couple of steps back and consider the circumstances that David is speaking from. If you remember, he has been anointed, anointed to become king. The Bible tells us that when Samuel poured oil upon David, that the Spirit of the Lord descended upon him. So he had this personal witness that he was going to become king. He knew it was true. It was a promise for him. But he found himself fleeing for his life. He was a, an endangered nomad going from place to place to avoid death at the hands of Saul. Remember the tension we talked about. David was confronted by two realities. There was a spiritual promise. And then... There's this physical reality, and it didn't match. They didn't match. And this is similar to the tensions that we face as well. 
So what does David do? He tells us in the psalm, he says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. There are two pictures, but I keep my eyes always on the Lord. He's not denying the validity of the physical reality. No, no. He's saying, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. And once his fi- he fixes his eyes on God, he finds that God's will always comes to pass. That God is able, that he is strong, that he is powerful. And that he cares and that he loves him. And out of that picture, David pens these words that we are looking at today. As a physical manifestation, a physical token of this spiritual understanding that he had come to see. These words became the substance of what he hoped for. It became an evidence that David was living out of a different reality, out of a different story. And that is faith. We too today have many physical tokens, things that God has given to us to help us express that we are living out of a different picture. We just gave offerings. We have communion today, the bread and the cup. We anoint sick people with oil. We lay hands on people and hold hands to pray. These physical tokens are small compared to the spiritual realities that they represent. They might seem mundane to us, the writing of a psalm, the singing of a song, the lifting up of hands, simple things. But the Bible tells us that they are made mighty through God. And we will see as we go on what God does with David's words in this psalm later on. So that's the purpose, to lift God up, to express confidence in Him. Let us now look at the psalm itself to see if we can understand David's thought process and how he was able to navigate this truly difficult circumstance. The first verse begins with David stating that he has made a choice. He says, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I've made a choice. I am in trouble. I have, you know, different choices I can make. I could resolve this physically. I could, I could have killed Saul in the cave, maybe. Twice he had opportunity to kill Saul. I could have ended this. But I am choosing to trust in you. I know that your blessing makes rich and it adds no sorrow. I am not going to fulfill your promises for you. I will wait on you. I am choosing to hide myself in you. That is his choice. And he he opens the psalm by telling us the choice he has made. In verses 2 to 4, he then compares the alternatives that he had. 
And it may not seem that way at first, but when you look at it, you see he's juxtaposing two types of people, representing two types of choices that he could have made or that he could make. The first one is represented by the first set of people that he describes. He says, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. The King James Version calls these the saints. I say of the saints, the people who have made the same type of choice that I am making, the ones who walk by faith, they give me delight. When I watch God fulfill His promises to them, it makes me happy. It makes me to feel validated in my own choice to trust in God as well. When I look at the testimonies of others, I feel strengthened to trust in God as well. Towards the end of the year at Hillside, we have those testimony Sundays. They're a favorite, aren't they? When you listen to the stories of God's faithfulness to other people, you say with David, I say of the holy people in, who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. It gives us strength to watch God be faithful, show himself faithful to other people. And that's what David is saying with the first set. He said, these people are the ones I have chosen to side with. But I had a second choice. And here he says, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. The second choice is represented by people who do not choose to rest on God. And here David is talking about the ancient practices where people would offer up sacrifices, sometimes human sacrifices, to other gods. He says, I will not do that. What David is crystallizing for us by comparing these two alternatives is that when it comes to the spiritual picture, when we have come to the end of all the physical options and we decide that we need something more, we have only two choices. When it comes to the spiritual reality, there is no middle ground. There's no neutral position. When you leave yourself outside of the good fight of faith, however difficult it may be for us, what we're really doing is we're leaving ourselves at the mercy of evil, and evil is not merciful. It only leads to even more suffering. So these are the two choices that he had. So he has told us his choice. He tells us what the alternatives are. And then let's see what David does next in the psalm. Now he reviews his own testimony. He reviews the evidence. He says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. David is now, in these verses, talking about his own walk with God. And he is remembering. He's remembering how he ran toward Goliath, and God gave him victory. And Paul, Saul, rather, gave him this wonderful gift. What an inheritance. He's remembering the friendship that he had with Jonathan. 
He is remembering the numerous times that he went to meet God to say, should I go into battle? And how God provided him with counsel. He says, even at night my heart instructs me. Oh, how jealous Saul must have been when he went to meet the medium and he said, God no longer speaks to me in the night. But David is remembering these things. When we too remember the faithfulness of God, when we remember all of the times that He has come through for us, when we remember how in, a, in the depths of our distress we called out to Him, when He provided for us, when He comforted us, when we could not even express ourselves, but He was there for us, when we remember how He has healed us and protected us, we too receive confidence to trust in Him yet once more, that He is faithful and He is strong, that He will not leave us, He will not forsake us, that He will be with us from now even until the end of time. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is why the Bible reminds us to remember. David is in a difficult situation. He has made a choice. And it doesn't get easier every time we make the choice to live by faith because we're doing so in escalating circumstances. It keeps getting harder and harder. And so it's worth remembering not only the testimony of others, but even our own testimonies. And he is doing that here. This is how he is fixing his eyes on that spiritual picture. This is the outworking of faith. Let us now observe what happens with verses 9 to 11. You'll notice a change in David's attitude. You'll notice a change in his words. He says, I keep my eyes on the Lord always. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Actually, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. I'm going to live to see the promises of God come to pass in my life. There is a confidence in these words. It's almost as though he has seen the end from the middle of those difficult circumstances. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. It's not going to happen, Saul. I'm going to make it. Nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I will live to see your promises come to pass in my life. And even when I am done, I will live in your presence forever, and I will enjoy pleasures at your right hand, David says. Once David fixes his eyes upon God, what happened was that became the entry point of the Holy Spirit into the conversation, into those circumstances. The Bible tells us that when we look at God, when we really look at Him, when we fix our eyes on Him, we're not ignoring the physical, no, we're not. But we're fixing our eyes on Him that we are transformed. 
And out of that transformation flows the rivers of living water into our circumstances. David fixed his eyes on God, and he was transformed first. And then his circumstances were transformed. And let us not forget that that verse ends with this even by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're probably aware that this psalm comes up again. This is when God uses David's words again. This psalm comes up again in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended upon that room, and it was shaking, and the people were speaking in tongues, and um, those who are watching think that these people are drunk. Peter stands up, and he says, actually, we're not drunk. And he gives a sermon. And in the sermon, he's quoting different verses, two of them from the Old Testament, and he quotes Psalm 16, verses 9 to 11. And this is what Peter says after he quotes this psalm. He says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Peter gives us a different look, a different interpretation of this same psalm. What are we to make of it? Well, I think we can take at least... There's one main thing, but I think there's a, there's a second one. The first of them is, when David was pursued by Saul, when he wrote the psalm, I doubt that he knew that God would take those words and that they would become the centerpiece, Scripture, of one of the greatest days in Christian history. When we, too, create physical expressions of our faith, when we step out in faith and we do those things that God tells us to do, when we kneel to pray for someone, we make an offering, when we come to His table, we do not know what God will do with these things. He is able to do exceeding abundantly more than we can imagine with these small tokens of faith. Well, the second thing, and the main point, is that this promise that seemed threatened, that seemed to be hanging on a balance, that seemed as though it would not come to pass, I love, I, I just love the way that God comes at it. It's like killing an ant with a hammer. He just nails it so seriously. Not only does God preserve David's life, and he is able to reign for 40 years, 40 years from when he was 30 to he was 70. God takes that same promise, that same act of faith, and one of David's line he takes 
and he enthrones him upon the throne of majesty on high for all of eternity. There is no question about who sits on the throne. And looking back, that promise seems so small. I mean, that threat seems so small. This is what faith does for us. When we fix our eyes on God, when we fix our eyes on Him, He's able to take the things that we do and to give them temporal significance. But not only that, he's able to take those things as well and give them permanent, eternal significance as well. That is why it is our works of faith that endure. So what are we to take from this psalm today? In our lives today? In our own tensions today? in the things that we are going through today, what do we take from this? I think we can take three things, at least. The first of them is this, that faith begins with knowing God. It begins with knowing God. Did you notice how all of this all of this psalm is predicated on a promise that David received from God. He had a revelation. He had knowledge of God. God knows that we cannot have faith if He does not reveal His will to us. The picture we're trying to fix our eyes on, He is the artist who has painted that picture. In fact, that picture is God's revealed will to us. He knows that we cannot have faith if we do not know Him, which is why He has revealed so much about Himself in the Bible. And He has asked us to study it, to spend time in it, so that we can understand His movements, we can understand His will and His purposes. And even in the situations where we find ourselves in need of a present moment revelation because our circumstances are so difficult that we need a, a, a revelation for today. God encourages us to ask Him. He says, call to me. Ask of me. I want to show you deep and wonderful things that you do not know. Call to me. Ask me. One of the best things that we can do to cultivate faith is to simply ask God what His will is in our circumstances. Until we know, we cannot live in light of that will. In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17, God says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. It's difficult it's hard to invest the time. But one thing we know about David is that he knew God. He knew the one with whom he was walking. And if we are going to have faith, we're going to have to spend more time knowing the person whom we call Father. The second thing is this, that Jesus' resurrection 
is the ultimate reason for us to have faith. It is the basis of our faith. You see, our tensions, the things that challenge us, the things that we struggle with, they happen within the context of our journey with God. Right? But our journey with God happens within the larger context of God's plan for creation. His redemption of the world. The significance of the resurrection of the resurrection is at that level, at the grandest level possible. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has declared that he is king of this earth. That he is in charge. And so when we engage in faith, when we say, you know what, I'm going to trust you on this. I'm going to do what you're asking me to do, even though I simply cannot see how this is going to make a difference. I don't understand how bread and juice can change me from the inside. When we say this, what we, what we are really saying here is that because God has done completely and fully in Jesus Christ, at the grandest level possible, a full redemption in the physical, that we are expecting that in our own lives in general, and in our circumstances in particular, that He will bring some of His power to bear. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us the hope that what God has done for one man, a historic fact about 2,000 years ago, that He would do again in our own lives, in our own circumstances. It might be smaller, but He'll do it again for us. Paul tells us, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is our faith. There's no power. The physical wins. But thank God that Jesus Christ has been raised. And our faith is not useless. And the resurrection power of God is available to us today. And the physical does not determine the limits of our lives. We have a hope beyond what is dictated by the circumstances that we find ourselves. The resurrection of Jesus as a historic fact is the power that gives life to our faith. I love how N.T. Wright spends a lot of time trying to get us to understand what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for us. And one of the things that he says that is really striking is, he says that the resurrection of Christ is God's announcement to the entire world that Jesus is king and he is coming. And that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near and right now is actually pushing through the kingdom of this world. 
and that God isn't going to take us away and just zap us. That what he's doing is that he's infiltrating, he's colonizing this earth with the very life of heaven. And it begins with each and every one of us as we step out in faith, believing in God, fixing our eyes on that picture. The final thing that I think we can take from this psalm is that the burden is light. As difficult as faith is, the burden is light because it is the Holy Spirit who does the work. Faith does not seem like grace, does it? The work that it takes to believe God, to hope, to pray in the midst of these difficult circumstances, it just doesn't seem like grace. But it is grace. Because when you compare the work that we do to the outcomes that we expect, we know that the majority of the work is done by the Holy Spirit. Let us think about David again, because he wrote this psalm. Saul is after him. There's a promise hanging in the balance. And the guy is writing words. He's writing words and singing songs. Seriously? Let us now think about how he became king. The Bible tells us. The Philistines attack Israel. Saul is confused. He's anxious. He runs to the medium. I need you to call up Samuel for me. I'm not hearing from God. In doing so, he commits an offense that he has put others to death for, um, because they committed that same offense. Samuel says, what are you doing? Why are you here? He's like, I'm desperate. I need an answer. Samuel says, God has left you. Next thing we know, he receives an arrow, falls on his sword. That's the end of Saul. His son rises up. Seven years later, his own men put him to death. All the while, David is singing songs of praise and writing psalms. Compare the work of the Holy Spirit in orchestrating all of this to the words of David. There is no comparing. He always does the largest share of the work. But our tokens create the entry point for him to enter into those circumstances. Like the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of the angel, said to Zechariah when um, the sec second temple was being rebuilt. He says, tell Zerubbabel that it is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. By my spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these words are packed full of revelation. 
and it is hard to understand fully sometimes. Well, Lord, we thank you because you have opened our eyes to, with, to some measure today. And now we want to pray, Lord, for all of those who have never walked by faith. Maybe they have thought that it doesn't work. Or maybe they think that they are not worthy. Lord, we pray also for those who have put down their shields of faith because the circumstances of life have weighed them down. The shield just seemed to not work anymore. The journey became too difficult for them. Lord, we lift up as well those who at this moment are holding up their shields of faith. Those who are choosing in the midst of tension to live out of the reality of who you are. They are covering themselves and covering their loved ones with their trust in you. Lord, for all of us we are praying that you would reveal to us the resurrected Jesus Christ, that we will have a new vision of him, and that seeing him enthroned upon the throne of majesty on high, that we would be encouraged to trust in him, that we would be encouraged to pick up our shields of faith and to fight this good fight of living out of a different reality. Father, above us, above all, Help us to remember that your, our call to lift up the shield of faith is really a call to lift you up. To lift you up high, to exalt your name, because it is you who is our shield, O oh Lord. And as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so you will surround us, your people, both now and forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To practice our faith, we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. And I would like to encourage you to come with expectation. Come with hope. Come with your desires and your fears and your anxieties. Because before us today is the greatest truth ever proclaimed to fallen man, that we have been reconciled with God, that his life is available to us, that we have not earned it on our own merit, but as we come, that Jesus Christ himself awaits us here this morning, and he is looking to enter into our own circumstances whatever they may be, he is waiting to enter into them. You may come down the, the center aisle. You can partake of the communion here at the front, or you can take the elements back to your seat. And God bless you as you come forward. Amen.